cover to cover. Stay with us. Good afternoon. This is Veronica Faison with a special edition of Cover to Cover. Uh, Today, actually, I'd like to review a book by Dr. Julianne Malveaux, African-American economist. The title of the book is Surviving and Thriving, 365 Facts in Black Economic History. And the publisher of this book is African, let me see, hold on, Last Word Productions, Inc., which is based in Washington, D.C. And you may be familiar with Dr. Julianne Malveaux. She's uh, been a TV personality. She's the 15th president of Bennett College for Women. She's recognized for her progressive and insightful observations. She's also, as I mentioned, an economist, author, commentator, and she's been described by Dr. Cornell West as the most iconoclastic public intellectual in the country. And that's saying a lot coming from Cornell West. Now, Dr. Malvo's uh, contributions to the public dialogue on issues such as race, culture, gender, and their economic imp- implications are shaping public opinion in the 21st century. And this book in particular, Striving and Sur- Surviving and Thriving, 365 Facts in Black Economic History is very inspiring and it comes at a time when we really need some uplifting information. And what it is is a collection of very brief passages about African Americans who were trendsetters, who basically broke the mold. Uh, for instance, we have Mary Ellen Pleasant, who's California's, uh, well, California's slave Act forced Mary Ellen Pleasance to assume two identities in order to avoid capture when she arrived in San Francisco in 1852. At this time, anyone without freedom papers could be sent back into slavery. Her two identities, Mrs. Ellen Smith, a white boarding house cook serving the wealthiest and most influential men while leveraging secrets for favors such as providing jobs and privileges for colored people, and Mrs. Pleasant, an abolitionist turned entrepreneur who used her money to help ex-slaves fight the California Slave Act and become business owners. So Mary Ellen Pleasant's fortune was once estimated at $30 million. Now, I'm talking about this is back in the 1800s when $30 million really was a lot of money. I mean, it still is today, but not nearly as much as it was back then. For one thing, there was no income tax. So uh, it's quite collective, uh, this book. I mean, they have people from every possible field, um, trendsetters. And actually, I would like to read you this little um, introduction by Kathy Hughes, who you may be aware is uh, the creator of TV One and Radio One. She's the founder. Okay, this is Kathy Hughes. 
black folks have never played on a level field where the economy is concerned. We've been propertied more frequently than we've held property. We've been exploited more frequently than we've been empowered. We've been buked. We've been scorned. Nonetheless, to quote Dr. Maya Angelou, and still we rise. In other words, we've been a viable collective of to in other words, we have been a viable collective to dictate economic stimulus and create communal wealth. We've started businesses and through our boycotts, we've stopped them. We are people who have gone far by faith playing the game even when the rules weren't fair. From the moments when enslaved blacks decided to buy their own freedom to the moments when some of us chose to trade our businesses on Wall Street, we have been bold, bodacious, and brilliant. We have both survived and thrived. And I'm so very pleased that this little jewel, the book she's referring to, Surviving and Thriving, 365 Facts in Black Economic History, at this little jewel that Julianne Malvo has put together as an economist. Uh, she's been passionate about the economic activity of our people. Now she's found 365 economic history facts, one a day, that can be used to motivate and inspire. She's speaking to future generations who need to know that there are shoulders to stand on as we continue to grow economically. To be sure, there are radical economic gaps which need to be closed. At the same time, there are stories of tenacity that must compel us to continue to thrive, to strive for wealth. As founder of Radio One and TV One, I can sincerely appreciate surviving and thriving 365 facts in black economic history. The recording and documenting of our economic development is critical to our continued growth. What makes this book special is that every member of the household can read it. Julianne Malbo gets straight to the point with her facts. Parents, when you send your kids to school in the morning, give them a fact for the day to instill a sense of history, a sense of pride. I'm excited to have this book in my possession and will give it as a gift on birthdays, on Christmas, and any opportunity I get for enlightenment. I view it as an investment in the economic development of the folks I care about. Our story has been one of triumph and tragedy in the United States. This is a book which highlights the personal achievements and tragedies associated with black economic development. It spotlights our losses that were the result of racial economic envy, as with when Tulsa, Oklahoma was bombed via air attack to destroy a thriving community in 1921. See, that's something I didn't know about. But there have been many sweet moments, such as Reggie Lewis's leadership of Beatrice Foods and the powerful empire amassed by Madam C.J. Walker. And so we rise and so we thrive. I'm grateful to Dr. Julian Malvo for this needed work and I'm thankful to have played some small part in our nation's black economic history. Sincerely, Kathy Hughes, founder Radio One TV One. 
which is a good channel, by the way. I highly recommend it. Now, I just want to read some more passages. Um, you may be aware that Maynard H. Jackson became the first black mayor in a major capital city of the South, Atlanta, on October 16, 1973. Jackson has been lauded for making Atlanta a distribution hub, convention destinations, and financial center. Under his leadership, Atlanta built the largest airport. One of Mayor Jackson's main priorities was to ensure that minority businesses receive more municipal contracts, and he succeeded in raising the proportions from less than 1% to more than 35%. Sadie Turner Moselle Alexander. In 1921, Sadie Tanner Moselle Alexander was the first African-American woman to receive a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Pennsylvania. Her thesis was titled, The Standard of Living Among 100 Negro Migrant Families in Philadelphia. Both investigative and descriptive, the work was an important documentation of the plight of such migrant families and helped draw attention to ways in which they could be helped. She was also the University of Pennsylvania Law School's first black woman graduate and the first woman to be admitted to Pennsylvania Bar. She received, she served on President Harry Truman's Committee on Civil Rights. Okay, Ursula Burns became an intern at Xerox in 1980 and worked her way up, eventually becoming the senior vice president of corporate strategic services and later president in 2007. Burns became the first African-American woman to head a Fortune 500 company when she became the CEO of Xerox Corporation in 2009 so people may not have known that it's something that happened that wasn't very well covered in the press and I think it definitely should have been here's someone that you might be familiar with Irwin Magic Johnson was a successful basketball player from the late 1970s to the mid 1990s in 1987 Johnson formed Magic Johnson Enterprises, serving as chairman and CEO. Johnson expanded the company and its subsidiaries to include a chain of movie theaters, a promotional company, a movie studio, and a joint venture with Starbucks. Its network of his corporation is estimated at $700 million. Johnson also served as vice president of the Lakers, his former team, and is a minority owner of that team. Ophelia DeVore. I want to tell you about her for one thing because I like her name, Ophelia DeVore. In 1946, Ophelia and a few friends established the Grace Del Marco Agency, one of the first modeling agencies in America to focus on the ethnic market. The modeling agency paved the way for African-Americans in the industry. DeVore also hosted ABC's Spotlight on Harlem, an opportunity to increase her agency's exposure. In 1985, her enterprise went global with Swaziland as a client. DeVore 
also owns the Columbus Times, a newspaper founded by her late husband. She also served as a consultant to many Fortune 500 companies. Reverend Leon H. Sullivan, as a child, supported himself by collecting and reselling discarded bottles. In 1964, Reverend Sullivan founded Opportunities Industrialization Center of America, Inc., to provide job training for blacks hoping to enter the job market. He also led boycotts of businesses to force the hiring of minority workers. Reverend Sullivan served on the board of General Motors, making him the first African-American to serve on the board of many U.S. corporations. Stacy Davis, in 1999, became the first African-American president and CEO of the Fannie Mae Foundation. On Actually, it happened September 16, 1999. Davis also served as vice president for housing and community development for Fannie Mae's Southeastern Regional Office in Atlanta, where she directed efforts to develop innovative housing partnerships to address the needs of low and moderate income residences. I don't know if she still has that job, but that doesn't sound like something that very desirable in this day and age with all that went down with Fannie Mae. Okay, how about Fannie B. Peck founded the Housewives League of Detroit, HLD, based on the theory that housewives controlled approximately 80% of their family's income. HLD designed a consumer-based support model that improved the economic conditions of African Americans in Detroit, Michigan. Other cities organized their own Housewives League. In 1933, these leagues became came together as the Housewives League, Leagues of America. Fannie B. Peck served as the president. Maria W. Stewart criticized African-American men for failing to move towards self-empowerment and not fighting for equal rights. So in 1833, in a speech titled Of African Rights and Liberty, not only did Stewart defend her own right to speak publicly, but she also criticized the colonization movement plans to send African Americans back to Africa. Noting the situation of the time, whites stealing land from Native Americans and stealing Africans from their own land to become slaves, Stewart argued that blacks should fight and gain more legal and economic freedom in the U.S. instead of returning to Africa. So we're still fighting that battle. In 1982, Bella Marshall Barden became one of the youngest African-American women to head the financial department of a major American city. In 1982, Barden was named finance director for the city of Detroit, Michigan. When she assumed responsibility for the fiscal health of Detroit, the city was in dire economic straits. In just over a decade, Barden had Detroit well on its way to a strong recovery. Essence magazine lauded Barden as one of the richest African-American women in the country with an estimated worth of $25 million. That was back in 1982. Of course, 
um, Oprah has definitely taken over that big time. Okay, Marcus Books. You may be aware, and this is something uh, that's going on in the Bay Area, of, you may be aware of Marcus Books. You might not be aware that Julian and Ray Richardson, co-founders of the nation's oldest African-American bookstores, Success Books Bookstore, which was later named Marcus Books to honor Marcus Garvey, that that uh, bookstore was founded in 1960 and was a meeting place for active groups, and it still is, and one of the first business establishments in San Francisco to host regular book clubs and poetry slams. A second location opened in Oakland in the mid-1970s, and the San Francisco store settled into its current location on Fillmore in 1980, and both, I'm pleased to say, are still going strong in both those locations. Okay, in 1963, the Birmingham Truce Agreement stated that public facilities would be desegregated and African Americans would be hired in the downtown shopping area. It also formed a committee to focus on solving racial problems. The agreement was reached on May 10, 1963, after a month-long protest by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, known as the Birmingham campaign with often violent responses from the authorities. Many white owned businesses suffered during this time due to boycotts and bad publicity. However, both businesses and political leaders were reluctant to meet with protesters. Mary McLeod Bethune. In 1904, Mary McLeod Bethune founded the Daytona Educational and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls with an initial investment of $1.50. Understandably, as the school at Daytona progressed, it became necessary to secure an adequate financial base. In other words, they needed more than $1.50. In 1912, Bethune interested James M. Gamble of the Procter & Gamble Company of Cincinnati, Ohio, who contributed financially to the school and served as chairman of its board and trustee until his death. In 1923, the school merged with Cookman Institute for Men, becoming a co-ed high school. It reached University status in 2007, and the institution was named Bethune Cookman University. So, uh, George Washington Carver, well, I'm sure many of you have heard his name, but you might not be aware that um, George Washington Carver invented hundreds of commercial uses for the peanut. And that includes such things as makeup, I discovered, because I went to Tuskegee and I went to, uh, there's a little museum that talks all about what he did and has some of his agricultural experiments there. I, I highly recommend if you go to Alabama, go to Tuskegee University and see, his, it'll knock your socks off. It's really impressive. So uh, George Washington Carver, uh, his research paved the way for sharecropping um, to generate additional means of revenue 
Uh, he shared his research through instructional bulletins. Ultimately, Carver's research helped to revitalize agricultural landscape of the South. In 1896, Carver was invited to lead the agricultural department at the five-year-old Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, later Tuskegee University. Carver accepted the position and remained there for 47 years, teaching former slaves and their descendants farming techniques for self-sustainability. And his model was always leave a place better than when you arrived there. Naomi Sims, in 1973, became the first African-American supermodel. And she created a collection of wigs, which you might be familiar with. The wig line successfully mimicked the texture of African-American hair. Sales exceeded $5 million in its first year. Sims promptly expanded the company internationally. In, in 1986, she founded a cosmetic line called Naomi Sims Beauty Products. So we're talking about people who had a vision and somehow had the courage and perseverance to make their dreams come true. And this is something, of course, that we need a lot of in this day and age. And one reason why I'm impressed by this book is because most of the information I hear about African Americans on the news and generally on the media is very negative. It's always about um, how economic trends are going to be harder on African Americans than anyone else. And I think this book shows that we have been thriving with nothing for a long time. Uh, a lot of the individuals cited in this book were able to succeed at a time when they had to deal with things like segregation, which is something that uh, we thought if we had integration, that, that would remedy a lot of our problems. And, uh, you know, it's up in the air whether or not that's true. It may have eliminated some, but certainly it also created some. So... um it's good to go back and get a, a different perspective. Now, in the late 1800s, there was something called the People's Grocery Company. It was founded in Memphis, Tennessee by three black men, Thomas Moss, Calvin McDonald, and Henry Stewart. From the day it opened, the business became the target of white resentment. In 1892, the owners were lynched by an angry white mob, prompting Ida B. Wells to publish Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. So people were trying to help themselves, and obviously they were experiencing serious resistance. Now, I want to say something about the Equal Pay Act of 1963. Um, that act requires that men and women be given equal pay for equal work, in the same establishment. The jobs need not be identical, but they must be substantially similar. In 2009, this act was expanded into Fair Pay Act, which includes prohibitions on pay based upon race, sex, and national origin. Both the Equal Pay Act and the Fair Pay Act 
were amendments to the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1939, which set a national minimum wage promised a half a time and a half rate for overtime and ended child labor. Isn't that something? So that happened in 1963, and we're still dealing with things uh, such as wage discrimination or at least disparity, depending upon how you're viewing it. Capital Savings Bank of Washington. In 1888, Capital Savings Bank was the first black bank in Washington, D.C. Capital Savings Bank was instrumental in the growth of many African-American-owned businesses by providing the capital essential for the growth of black businesses. African-American churches and fraternal organizations played a major role in the development of Capital Savings Bank. It's something I was not aware of. In 1953, the New York Stock Exchange, NYSE, exam was passed by the first African-American woman. Her name is Lilia St. John. She gave up her former career as a singer and television host because she found this new venture dealing with the stock exchange utterly fascinating. Because of this feat, St. John was able to work as a certified investment counselor for Oppenheimer and Company, one of the nation's oldest investment firms. Well, now I think if you work on the stock exchange, you have to have at least a bachelor's degree. I don't know if she did, but um, you have to admire her sense of courage. She stepped out. She said, I want that, and she went for it. In 1950, the Rosa Maida House of Beauty was the largest African-American-owned chain of beauty salons in the nation, boasting revenues in excess of $3 million. Born in 1912, Morgan was the name of the woman who owned it and who created it, also helped found Freedom National Bank, the only African-American-owned commercial bank in New York. I love uh, reading about the things that happened years ago because, you know, I just know in this day and age, it seems that we have so many opportunities and maybe... Sometimes I think we can also be doing a lot more than we do when you compare what's happening now with what was going on years ago when people had to struggle for everything. For instance, Maria W. Stewart criticized African-American men. Oh, I already told you that. (laughs) Ah. Okay, I'm going to tell you about Valerie Daniels Carter, president and chief executive officer of the largest African-American-owned restaurant franchise. It's called V&J Holding Companies, Inc. Her dream began in 1984 when she opened her first Burger King restaurant in Milwaukee. Under the helm of Daniels Carter, the Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based corporation operates more than 100 Pizza Huts and Burger Kings in four states. Black Enterprise listed it as one of the top 100 industrial service companies with sales of over 97 million. That was in 2006. Okay, so uh, I've just given you a, 
kind of an in-depth overview of this book, Surviving and Thriving, 365 Facts in Black Economic History by Dr. Julianne Malvo. And I certainly recommend, um, if you're interested, pick one up. It's very informative. And thanks for listening to this special edition of Cover to Cover. Have a good evening. It's Veronica Faison. August 6th from 6 to 9 p.m. Emma's Revolution. Dr. Ajahn Makajani, Taiko drummers and other great artists and speakers are coming to Livermore. Will you be there? We will mark the 66th anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of Japan at the place where scientists are developing new nuclear bombs. Livermore Lab. The program is from Hiroshima to Fukushima to Livermore, confronting the two-headed dragon of nuclear weapons and nuclear power. Where? Bill Payne Park, directly across the street from the Livermore Nuclear Weapons Lab on Vasco Road. Expect great food, music, speakers, dance, and live video with an atomic bomb survivor and anti-nuclear activist in Japan. This benefits Tri-Valley Cares and Friends. For details, 925-443-7148. This is Free Speech Radio News for Friday the 22nd of July 2011.